Hey there, it's me, Jesse Tyler Ferguson, that redheaded actor from Modern Family. I have a podcast. It's combining a couple of my favorite things, talking and food. Please join me as I dine with the biggest names in entertainment, people like Julie Bowen, Kristen Bell, Fred Armisen, and so many more. It's called Dinners on Me, and you're invited. Am I saying a chocolate souffle is going to get me to reveal all of my secrets? Yeah, I am. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. Putin was banking on NATO being split. My early conversation with him in December and early January it was clear to me he didn't think we could sustain this cohesion. NATO has never, never been more united than it is today. Putin is getting exactly the opposite what he intended to have as a consequence of going into Ukraine. President Biden's trip to NATO headquarters for this extraordinary meeting of alliance leaders is a moment to really showcase Western unity in the face of Russia's invasion in Ukraine. That is Missy Ryan. She covers diplomacy and national security for The Post. We saw President Biden today make an announcement that the United States will welcome up to 100,000 refugees from Ukraine. There are additional sanctions that he is announcing on Ukraine, just in conjunction with similar announcements from European countries. And he's also expected to make an announcement about providing energy supplies to Europe at a time where they're really having to scramble to make up for this potential problem that they're having vis-a-vis their Russian energy supplies. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, March 24th. Today, we're talking to Missy about how the U.S. and its NATO allies are coming up with new strategies in the face of Russian aggression. And later in the show, we hear from people whose families are stuck in Mariupol. It was striking to me the fact that right after Putin launched his invasion, you had this extraordinary moment of strength from Europe where you had the EU for the first time ever decide to finance and export weapons to a country in conflict. You had Germany abandon this years-long prohibition on supplying weapons. They abandoned the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. You know, it was this moment, I think, sort of reinvigorating Europe as a bloc that could exercise strength together with the United States and Canada. And, you know, I think the big question right now is how long that position and that unity and that strength can be sustained because there are significant economic costs to it. Tell me more about the solution to actually ship natural gas to Europe to make up for what they won't be getting from Russia. Well, what the United States is expected to do is announce that they'll provide LNG, liquefied natural gas, to Europe. But there are a lot of challenges associated with trying to make up the shortfall in Russian supplies, namely that there is a pipeline capacity problem and there aren't sufficient terminals in Europe to turn the liquefied gas back into gas form. And so it's still going to be a painful period for European countries, which are heavily reliant on Russian gas supplies. And the fact that these European countries are willing to take the steps to isolate Russia and to decrease their dependence on Russian gas is really a sign of the importance that they're placing Hmm. on Russia's invasion in Ukraine and what that means for 
security across Europe, for uh, European and transatlantic values in terms of democracies, territorial integrity, and all of that. The fact that they're willing to subject European consumers to higher gas prices and having to come up with these extraordinary arrangements is a sign of just how critical they see this challenge that Putin is posing to the West. Hmm. So, Missy, as you said, so much of this is about trying to present an image of unity among NATO members um, in opposition to what Russia is doing. But you've also been reporting that there is some disagreement among NATO countries about how to navigate this moment and how best to deter Russia. Can you talk more about what different camps are saying? Sure. I mean, there has been some criticism of the fact that the Biden administration from the beginning has been very plain about the fact it does not intend to use force against Russia, that it would not send American forces to help Ukraine, and that in their view, that is something that could lead to a dramatic escalation of the conflict and even to some sort of use of a nuclear weapon. And there's some criticism from other NATO members, particularly in Eastern Europe, that by telegraphing the limits of what Biden is willing to do, it could potentially embolden Putin. It makes him willing to, you know, test what he can get away with without, you know, having to worry about American combat forces flowing into Ukraine. Mm-hmm. I think the reason why the administration has decided to take this approach is that they feel like it reduces the risk of miscalculation that could lead to a NATO-Russia conflict. And that's a scenario that everybody is trying to avoid. So if right now sending NATO troops into Ukraine is off the table, especially because the U.S. remains so opposed to that prospect, then what is NATO trying to do militarily short of sending an actual troop to Ukraine? Yeah, well, I think it's important just to note, to start off with, that Ukraine is not a NATO member, and so the NATO leadership and and the leadership of of every NATO country has been pretty clear that, like President Biden, that they're not going to send combat forces into Ukraine. But what NATO is doing is sending reinforcements to the eastern flank of NATO and new weaponry. And so you're going to see the continuation of that process, including as the Secretary General Stoltenberg of NATO said this week, additional battle groups to Eastern Europe. You know, I was in Estonia earlier this month around a a trip that Secretary of State Blinken made to Estonia, and it was interesting to hear the the real difference that these forces, even though they're relatively small in number, forces from France, from the UK, some from the United States, make to a country like Estonia, which has an active duty military of 4,000 people and no combat aircraft. So when you have the United States send in F 16s and you know countries are sending in F-35s to take part in this Baltic air police mission. It really does transform their sense of security. And I think that they feel much more confident about the odds of staving off some sort of wider attack by Putin given the the tripwire forces and the hmm. reassurance forces that are there. Hmm. Missy, uh, you mentioned that the U.S. has now announced that they are going to be accepting 100,000 refugees from Ukraine. Do we know what that is going to look like? How soon some of these people are going to be arriving in the U.S.? Yeah, we don't know very much. It's, it's just broke this morning, and um, it you know is going to be accompanied by presumably increased funding to resettlement agencies, and it's going to be a big process, I think. You know, we've already seen the challenges in accepting refugees 
over the last year with this surge of people coming from Afghanistan. So I think it's too soon to say how close to that level it could get. You know, it could be significantly lower if people are coming by land from Ukraine to European countries. They, you know, it stands to reason that they may stay in Europe more, but certainly there will be people who do want to come to the United States. And this does, in some ways, level the playing field to some extent because you've had this incredible crush of of refugees coming to places like Poland, which have had, you know, more than 2 million people cross their border, overwhelming services in Poland, and huge numbers also going into countries like Moldova, which, you know, have a much bigger challenge economically in in being able to absorb that number of refugees. So here you have the United States saying, you know, even though we're farther away, we're across the Atlantic, we're going to do our part as well. And I think that that is also a sign from the Biden administration that this is not going to be resolved anytime soon. So any hope that people could cross the border into Poland or Moldova, Romania, and come back to their homes within a couple of weeks, I think is really not on the table right now. It's already been a month, and there's no sign detected by anybody that I've talked to that Russia is really willing to drop any of the demands that have been so problematic for Ukraine and its Western supporters. So this week, the U.S. has said that Russia has committed war crimes in Ukraine. How does that change the dynamic between these two nuclear powers? You know, it was interesting. We had the statement from Blinken yesterday formally assessing that Russian forces had committed war crimes in Ukraine and are committing war crimes in Ukraine. And and that really takes a step further, some of the statements that people like, you know, Biden had made a sort of off-the-cuff remark. Oh, I I, I think he is a war criminal. That was something that really angered the Kremlin. The U.S. ambassador in, in Russia was summoned to be sort of told off by Russian officials after that. We had had Blinken say that he personally believed that the events in Ukraine constituted war crimes. Intentionally targeting civilians is a war crime. After all the destruction of the past three weeks, I find it difficult to conclude that the Russians are doing otherwise. But here we have a statement, an assessment that was the result of a review of of intelligence information and public information on the part of the U.S. government. And and did Blinken say exactly what were the actions that Russia has taken that he and the U.S. government consider war crimes? Like, did he go into detail? He did not. Blinken referenced some of the attacks that we've seen in places like Mariupol, uh, attacks on hospitals and ambulances and schools. There were mm. no specific individuals who were, you know, who could be responsible in, in these incidents or specific incidents identified. But it, I think it was more about hardening the position of the United States to align with some of the European countries have already launched their their own war crimes investigations and sending a signal that there could be long-term judicial consequences for members of Russia's military, uh, potentially for Putin himself, who is the commander-in-chief of the Russian military. And the practical consequences of this assessment aren't really clear at this stage. You know, we know that the international criminal process is very slow and not always very effective. But there's the possibility of war crimes investigations being opened in countries, including Ukraine, including other European countries that have sort of jurisdictions that would allow those kind of trials to take place. And so this is the United States sort of setting down a marker about what it believes is occurring, and it's going to be helping compile evidence and sharing that 
with countries or international bodies where there could be some sort of criminal accountability later down the road. You know, as this conflict has gone on, I think there has been more and more talk about nuclear weapons and whether that could actually come into play, especially as there have been so many points during the last couple of months where people thought, okay, this is a line that Putin would not cross and yet has crossed those lines. And so can you talk a little bit more about where this looming threat of nuclear conflict stands and if that's something that we need to be worried about? Yeah, it's really striking for me, having covered national security for 15 years now, that there actually is a serious conversation about the possibility for a nuclear device being detonated by a nation state. It wasn't something I imagined could happen in the 21st century. And here we are where we have a a Russian government led by someone who U.S. intelligence agencies believe is increasingly isolated, who has overseen a military campaign that is going far worse than expected, and a government that has a history of, in the words of the U.S. officials we talked to, you know, escalating to de-escalate or escalating to have additional options. And so when Putin, in the early days of the war, referenced serious consequences for countries that became involved, you know, it, it appeared to be a veiled reference to Russia's ability to tap its nuclear arsenal. And there's been a lot of speculation about whether or not it would resort to using what is called a tactical nuclear device, a a small scale nuclear device in Ukraine, or, you know, maybe blowing something up in the sky to send a signal. We don't have any indication that that kind of move is imminent. There are reasons to think I think really good reasons to think that Russia wouldn't go ahead with it because, you know, they do have their own nuclear safeguard system. But, you know, on the other hand, this is a a country and a government that um, is increasingly moved by the will and whims of one individual, Hmm. somebody who's under incredible strain right now because of the severity of the economic sanctions and the Russian economy is in freefall right now. So I think it does raise serious questions. I would also note that the U.S. government and the Pentagon in particular have been really cautious in talking about this. They hmm. have not increased their nuclear alert levels that I'm aware of. And, and what do you make of that? What I make of that is that they want to avoid escalation especially in the, you know, strategic or nuclear area, they want to, even if people are obviously concerned about it, they don't want to provoke a a tit-for-tat escalation in alert levels or, or, you know, deployment of different nuclear-capable weapons. And so they are trying to kind of say, steady as she goes. And Hmm. while the United States and Russia are in a serious crisis, the most serious crisis between the West and Moscow since the Cuban Missile Crisis, they want to keep this in the conventional and economic and political realm. Missy, this has been so insightful. Thank you so much. Thank you. Missy Ryan covers diplomacy and national security for The Post. Emma Talkoff produced this story. After the break, we hear from our colleagues on the ground in Ukraine about what it's like for people who are unable to reach their families in Mariupol. We'll be right back.
And now one more thing from foreign correspondent Siobhan O'Grady, who's been reporting the last month from Kyiv. For weeks, as Russian forces have closed in on the capital, we've been hearing stories of absolutely horrific conditions from the southern port city of Mariupol. Mariupol is under a communications blackout. The last international journalists who were there were forced to flee last week after they learned that Russian forces were targeting them. Thanks in large part to the immense bravery of two Associated Press journalists who stayed behind once the war began, we've learned how the Russian campaign has targeted hospitals, civilians, and created a humanitarian disaster. Local officials say that thousands of people have been killed. And on Monday, Ukrainian forces rejected an ultimatum from Moscow to surrender and evacuate the city. Most communication to the city has been cut off since March 2nd. Cell phone networks are largely down. Power has been cut. This means that even if somebody has connection, they might not be able to charge their phone to call their relatives or let them know that they're even still alive. As unimaginably stressful as this must be for the people living through the siege in Mariupol, it's also been really, really hard on all of the people who have been left behind without a trace of their family. Across the world, people who are searching for their family members have posted appeals on social media networks, shared photos, asking for any information, looking for any sign of their relatives or friends who they haven't been able to hear from for weeks on end. Siobhan and our colleague Kostyantin Hudov spoke with some of these people. They are desperate to get in touch with their families in Mariupol. One of them is Dima Sokolov. A few weeks ago, he was a regular 27-year-old guy learning how to DJ. Now he's just spending his days trying to figure out if his parents and grandmother are alive or dead. She called me on March 2nd. Uh, it was a very brief call. Uh, then signal went off and she approached, uh, she sent me a message on Telegram saying that, listen, we've got, uh, I don't have much battery left and uh, they're cutting off electricity. Uh, so I speak to you soon. And that's the last time that yes. you heard from her? Yes. March 2nd? Yes. Every day his brain cycles through the same thoughts. Are they alive? Are they hurt? Are they freezing? Are they sick, dehydrated, starving, trapped somewhere where they can't reach the medication that his father needs? Uh, and many people try to explain that uh, you should, you should, you should uh, think about yourself, not about your family. Uh, you, you should keep your uh, health. And, uh, this is hard to explain, but my mind is all with my family now and it's all that I want to know. The only scenario that gives him any sense of hope is that maybe they're just trapped somewhere and perfectly okay, but just don't have any cell signal or power to reach him. Uh, uh, when I when I start to uh, reading some uh, news, I, I'm looking for uh, Mariupol, Mariupol, Donetsk region, region. But now, uh, last uh, weeks, last week, uh, I can't find this. Well, no, in news. Because there's no update. Yes, yes. Listening to him talk about being separated from his parents left both me and Kostantin feeling completely helpless. If Mariupol is a hell right now, it does feel like the people who are stuck outside waiting for any news about their families are living in their own version of hell, too. 
Dimitro Gorin is one of them. So can you just tell me on, um, I'm going to record it if that's okay. okay. Just tell me what your name is and your job. He's a member of parliament in Kyiv, but his parents are also in Mariupol. Luckily, they have a car with some fuel, so they've actually been able to charge their phones a few times using a car charger. And they've had network, too, occasionally. So they've been able to contact him several times to confirm that they're still alive. And uh, they don't have uh, the house anymore, the home anymore. And the, the house where I grew up, uh, where I lived 15 years. It's destroyed. It's totally destroyed, it's totally burned. Uh, and the house next to it also is totally burned, it's just black and, uh, and there is no house. And uh, they leave now. Because he's been able to reach his parents, they've told him about how they've had to use wood from trees to cook for themselves. They're staying with friends. They have no heat, no electricity, no gas. They had to take water from the house where they're staying's radiator system and from a well. And they actually even had to melt snow to drink. Uh, when I go to bed, I understand that I have this bed and I'm warm and I have food and I have water and uh, uh, my parents don't. And uh, it's really hard. It's really hard to imagine what they're going through. And uh, uh, it's, uh, it cannot uh, fit. They've seen bodies on the street. And he said that his dad seems to just be tapping into some kind of internal strength. Something that someone only can tap into when they're just trying to stay alive. Frankly speaking, you cannot, uh, you cannot imagine it, really. You, yeah, you know the facts. You trust that really all of this is going on like this, but you can't imagine it and you can't just fit in your head. But every phone call he gets, it's like this panic rushes through him, waiting to hear more news or potentially bad news out of Mariupol. I just want them to get out of their life. And uh, in this situation, you cannot help. uh, You don't have any way to help. You just understand that uh, their common sense and their, you know, uh, life experience, uh, that's uh, the only thing you can uh, uh, count on. For now, there don't seem to be very many good options to get out of Mariupol. Some people have gotten out, thousands in fact, have fled the city, often at great risk to themselves. There's always a risk that shelling will occur on the roads out, and there's no guaranteed humanitarian corridor. Before the war, 500,000 people lived in Mariupol. Now, there are still hundreds of thousands left, and what we know is that they're living in a complete humanitarian disaster. Some of those who have managed to get out have said the city basically doesn't exist anymore. Footage that we've seen shows complete and utter destruction. It's apocalyptic, it's inhumane, it's inconceivable. But it's happening, and for now, a lot more people are stuck, and their loved ones don't know when or if they'll see them again, or if they're even still alive. Siobhan O'Grady is a foreign correspondent for The Post. Kostyantin Hudov is a journalist based in Kyiv. Alexis Diaw produced this story. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Sean Carter and edited by Maggie Penman. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.